Folks, this is Shaq Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today is July seventh, two thousand ten, and we're going to make good on our promise to bring Mike Gazer, financial guru, on to talk to us about what the future entails for the economy. And I'll be straight with you: not everything you're going to hear is good, but that's why we prepare in the first place. Before we do that, though, I want to go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. Housekeeping item one is always: let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one: Common Sense Prep.、Uh, they deliver exactly what they promise. Promise there, folks. Common sense stuff for your prepping needs. To be prepared for any type of disaster that could come your way without going out and wearing a tinfoil hat. In fact,、uh, the folks over there put it to me this way: believe, believe, believe. We believe in taking that tinfoil hat, turning it around, and turning it into a dish if we're out there in the woods and being practical with the things that are going on. So check out Common Sense Prep. Sponsor of the day number two is Western Botanicals.、Uh, I was so excited when we brought these guys on as a show sponsor and a site sponsor because I have absolutely never seen a collection of raw herbs and herbal preparations that rivals the catalog that these guys bring to the table. You can't think of an herb that's legal to purchase in the United States that you can't find on their website, and you can't think of an application that they haven't already developed a preparation for. And any question you have, they're going to have an answer for you, or they're going to find out what that answer is. So check them out. And remember, if you're a member of the Support Brigade, you get their preferred membership, which is 25% off everything on their website, and you get that preferred membership from them 100% for free. I also want to remind you guys: connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm doing a real good job, I think, now of staying in touch with you guys that way. It's what you guys wanted, so I made sure that we were、uh, had a place there for communication through those mediums. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're getting real close to 4,000 subscribers. I'm really kind of set a goal to end the summer with 5,000. That's going to be tough, but I think with your help, we can get that done.、Um, I also want to remind you guys: Friday, I'm giving away a soil cube. Uh, uh, actually, two of them from、uh, the Soil Cube Company、uh, in the Lister contest. So make sure you tune in for that. And last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Great discounts like the one I mentioned for Western Botanicals, but there's about 20 different vendors you get discounts to. Comes out to 20 cents an episode of supporting the show, and you get a definite ROI, which I think our guests would agree. ROIs are good things to have. And on that note, let me now introduce Mike Gazer.、Uh, he's with us today, and he is what I consider to be a consummate expert. He has authored. Ten textbooks on investments—that's saying something—and、uh, the investment markets. There's over 700,000 people worldwide that read his monthly newsletter. When that many people are listening to you, you must be saying something that matters. He had a radio program called Big Money with Mike Gazer, which aired worldwide on Voice America, and it was one of the first share- shows to ever focus on the needs, concerns, and issues faced by the world's largest investors. Mike is a regular ga- guest on the Naked Short Club in London. 
He's also the founder of AFS Seminars, uh, which he founded in 1989 after spending time with several Wall Street firms uh, and a major European bank. In his teaching, what I like about him is he uses a lot of anecdotes and lessons drawn from his lifetime of experience with economics, investments, and the financial markets to deliver knowledge with a dynamic, interactive teaching style. And, and frankly, folks, I find it to be among one of the best in the industry, and that's why I think we're fortunate to have him today with us on the Survival Podcast. Mike, thanks for joining us. Big Jack, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing pretty good. I don't know how I'm going to feel by the time we're done with this interview based on some of the <laughs> uh, the gloom and doom that you're known. What do they call you on the Naked Short Club? They call you... The Prince of Darkness. The Prince of Darkness, that's right, yeah. Uh, so I don't know how to feel after spending an hour with the Prince of Darkness talking about the economy. I'm sure there's a lot we'll agree on, some we'll disagree on, but I, I think we both are going to end up saying, yeah, we're kind of going to the same place, the only discrepancies may be how we get there. Uh, but I just gave the audience a bit about your background. Could you tell us a bit more, like, how long have you been in the financial industry? Give us some of the companies you've worked with, and because you've worked with them, maybe some unique insights that you have that, you know, the typical financial guy that's maybe been in one place for his whole career doesn't see well i i you know i grew up like a lot of people i grew up in a working class blue collar family uh dad worked for the utility and and uh without getting into the details of it i'm a licensed electrician and damn good at it too but uh, <laughs> i spent my entire adult life in the financial industry and uh part of it was as an institutional uh fixed income stockbroker effectively selling primarily bonds uh, with Lehman Brothers, uh, then I left them to go to work for a smaller boutique firm for a couple of years, uh, worked for Barclays, the British bank, for a couple of years after that, and as you said, uh, stumbled, stumbled into this whole training and consulting that I do now, because uh, I was unaware. I, I always dealt with the guys who made the investment decisions at gigantic companies, you know, the big insurance companies and the big pension funds, the mutual fund companies, I didn't realize there was a whole population of people that sort of have to, you know, no better way to describe it, clean up, clean up the mess afterwards. You know, the investment manager buys these investments, and then there's all these accountants and auditors and, and computer programmers who could have been working for anybody, a pharmaceutical company, uh, automaker, and they end up working for a big institution. And, uh, and that's my audience. So I, effectively, like you said, I do that every day, try to explain this complex stuff to people that really didn't even want to know about it, much less did they know anything about it. That's the, and I, I think that, that there's a couple of things there. One, you've had to figure out how to break down all the components, so that's part of your teaching style. But if I segue off just for a second, because I've been doing a lot lately on the show about telling people that whatever their passion is, they should pursue it. I think you see an example of that there. You're, you can see when you're teaching, that's your passion. And people would say a niche like, Accountants that work for firms uh, that, that clean up messes is kind of a narrow niche, but it's probably been a pretty good place to be over the years for you. We can we can tell that by your yacht that's in a couple of your videos. And, and I, I, I don't say that really like to illuminate Mike. It's for you folks out there that I've been saying, hey, look, whatever it is that you're really passionate about, go do that. So I, I think it's really cool that you you've been able to carve out that niche teaching and to a segment of the population that I think most people never even think about. Well, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, and, and, and I've written about it and talked about it, is I'm really worried right this minute that the profession that's going to get thrown under the bus for this whole mess is going to be the accounting profession, even though 
they got leaned on politically to just lay off. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm certain, you know, you and I will talk about that, but uh, these are people, these are professional people. These are smart people. They didn't want to go to work for a big investment bank. They didn't want to work for Goldman Sachs. They wanted to be whatever they wanted to be. They wanted to be an accountant. Mm -hmm. They wanted to write computer programs. And, and, and I don't know if I like the word stuck, but they got stuck to having to deal with these investments. And, you know, 21 years that I've been doing this has been the most fertile time with regards to how much Wall Street has made the financial world, tr world tremendously complex. It used to be a lot simpler. You had stocks and you had bonds, and that was about the end of the story. And the world now is populated with all this stuff and uh, valuing it. Uh, accounting for it, reporting for it. it's just it's a nightmare, and uh, these people need to know the truth. And I I have found a way to sort of just break these complex things down to here's what you need to know, like everything in life, like fixing engines, like growing corn or whatever it is. There's certain things, ninety percent of it you could explain in like ten minutes. The other ten percent you can't learn the rest of your lifetime. So that's what I try to do. You focus on the 90%. And, and let's yeah. dig into that more in just a second on, on, the, on the guys getting the blame, because that lines perfectly up with my next question for you. But I would say, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this, the people that get angry on the account at the accountants in this climate are like people that get angry at the weatherman when it rains. They account for everything. They put the numbers there. They tell you the way it is. And then they're given rules that they have to follow in doing that. They're not the ones that are out there making, wheeling, and dealing, and creating these uh, these some of these uh, investment vehicles that I would find dangerous, wouldn't you say? Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, the, you, you you would hear even even your audience who maybe doesn't even pay tremendous attention. Some everyone's concerned with the the, the stock market and the economy, but everyone probably now has heard of mark to market accounting of all God-forsaken things that the American public would even want to know about, and how it was somehow to blame for this whole, or at least partially to blame for this whole mess. Well, the fact of the matter is, if, if I'm a company, and I have a whole boatload of assets, the value of them, very simply, is what somebody's willing to give me for them if I were to try to sell them. So asking me to, like, value my assets at what they're worth uh, is, I think, reasonable. I understand that it makes the companies look very volatile value-wise because, obviously, especially in the last two or three years, oh, my God, values are all over the board. The Dow Jones is 12000 The Dow Jones is 7000 Interest rates are way up. Interest rates are way down. Currencies are up. Currencies are down. I understand that. It does create a volatile situation, but, I mean, there's no arguing the fact that it's not realistic. Something is only worth what Jack Spirico is willing to pay me for it. Correct, correct. And and what you're talking about there is, is, is FAS 157, which I was talking about back in, like, 2008, and I discovered you, like, a year later, maybe a year and a half later, and I was like, wow, this is really uh, forward-looking stuff. And then I realized that you were actually talking about it a year before me, and you were seeing all this stuff coming. What I was telling people back in 2008 was, look, you guys, it, this is a time, you, your words would be, tie your boat to the dock and sit this one out. This is going to suck. And this FAS 157, this mark-to-market thing, 
good nor bad. It, it's not what I'm saying, but when it, and this is before it actually hit and they had to do it, when they have to do it, we're going to see what's going on behind the scenes. And that is the, you know, like you're saying, the mark to market. So if a person has a security, what's it worth on the balance sheet? Whatever they can sell it for today. Not whatever a computer model says it's worth. But then these guys, not only did they put this into place, then under political pressure, they took it back and it created this illusion things were getting better. Wouldn't you say it kind of was like you got a patient in the hospital with a bandage on their arm? You pull the bandage back and it's full of gangrene and it's rotting out and you can see their bones underneath it. And then under pressure uh, to not make it look so bad to the family, you just close the bandage back up and say everything's okay now. Isn't that kind of what happened? That's a fairly disgusting. I think the economy's pretty disgusting right now, though. I mean, you are the prince of darkness. <laughs> yeah, well, let me let me choke down my lunch and see if I can actually answer you here. But, uh, it, you know, just let me explain it to your audience, who who probably is already thinking about like turning off turning off the show. So, but bear bear before you do, give me a second. The thing about. SAS-157, which Jack just mentioned, that everyone needs to understand, is, yes, it is what makes these companies value their investments at their market value. That's the simple part. The more complex part that's hard for the public to get their head around is you have to put the, the, the investments into three categories, which are all driven by where did you get the value. Now, while Jack was using the gangrene story, by the way, <laughs> I, I, I went on Yahoo Finance, I punched in IBM on Yahoo Finance, and I just saw that it traded a second ago for $126.03. For the purposes of SAS 157, that's Category 1. That's a Level 1 asset. You can't give me a hard time about that value. That was just established between two strangers, strangers to each other, strangers to me, in an open auction environment down on the New York Stock Exchange, that's as good as pricing gets. What I don't think America considers is there's a lot of investments you can own that you can't do that for. Like, no one ever thinks about it, but you never heard of the New York Bond Exchange or the American Bond Exchange. Like, bonds trade strictly over the counter. If you want to buy or sell bonds, you call up Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or J.P. Morgan, and you ask them, how much would you give me if I were to sell you this bond? And they're going to quote you a price, but the thing is that America doesn't realize is they're going to buy it from you into their own inventory where, where it's going to sit until they sell it to somebody else. See, so if I have a bond and I need a value, I can call one of them up and they'll tell me that's worth 105 Great. Well, that's category two. It's not an open auction market, but it's a third party, a respected institution like Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley. We can go back to whether they're respectable or not later. But that's not bad. But the thing is, there's an ocean of assets that there's no market, like, like the New York Stock Exchange, to observe. That would have been, you know, level one. There's nobody that's willing to give me a quote that's at least deemed respectable, which would have been level two, which means it goes to level three, which means I have to figure out what it's worth via some hideous NASA rocket science calculation, which is very hard for your typical CPA 
to argue with because they don't even have anywhere to go to tell me I'm full of crap. Sure. And, and, and there's an old story on Wall Street, which I learned. I heard the story God Almighty 30 years ago, which I hate being old enough to tell you that. Tell you that. But there was this guy. He had a million-dollar dog, but, but, but he decided he would trade it for two half-million-dollar cats. <laughs> and it's a metaphor because there's, there's, all, there's all kind of value getting thrown around there, million-dollar yeah. dogs. And that. But you notice one thing that didn't happen, no money changed Correct. hands. Correct. Between anybody, and all there's a host of gigantic U.S. institutions that have a boatload of these level three assets, which they are just lying there. You know what's off with regards to the value of, and to our point of you know ten minutes ago, that political pressure caused my accountant friends to lay off. Just give them a break, and and the actual like like wording was something to the effect. That you know, give them more flexibility with how they calculate them, which basically means give them more flexibility about the, how they lie about them is what it really turned into, and that's that's what that's where we are right now in the economy. A lot of lying is going on. So say what you want to about my analogy being gross. We oh, brought in we brought in mark to market. It showed us the real state of affairs, yeah. and then under political pressure, we covered it back up. And swept yeah. it under the rug and went back to lying, and it made everything look better. But the patient's still really, really sick. Um, yeah, and well, on, go ahead. No, your audience should, should just think about about a year and a half ago or so when it seemed like there was a whole whole bunch of gigantic U.S. financial institutions that were a heartbeat away from bankruptcy. And Correct. Then moments later, it's all good. They're all good. <laughs> That's what I mean. We covered. We just covered up the wound, and part of that wound is 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 that the the national debt. I, I remember in, in the video that I was talking about where I saw you talking about all these things, you know, before they occurred and explaining how they would play out, and then realizing they had played out from between the time you'd recorded it until now. That one of the things you said in that video was that uh, between 2000 and 2006. This nation had taken on $1.3 trillion over six years in new debt, and it was mostly foreign and the problems uh, that that would create. Today, in 2010, our government is running a deficit this year of $1.6 trillion. So they've taken on more debt this year than they did during those six years. And what I want to know from you is, you know, what does that tell us about the direction this country and our economy is heading in? Well, the administration inherited that, of course. Yes, they inherited the $1.6 trillion they spent that they didn't have. Correct. <laughs> we, we, we both sound adequately sarcastic there? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I, I, I just helped just check it. But, uh, but, you know, let, let's, again, let's keep it at a level that, like, everybody can digest without indigestion. But the fact of the matter is, if you ask any of your audience what the hell got us into this mess, it'd be four letters. Debt. Too much debt. Everybody was in too much debt. Everybody was borrowing too much money. Too many easy mortgages. Too many credit cards. Too many car. Too many, too much everything. Well, the fact of the matter is that's not even disputable. I mean, I can just provide massive. The government would give it to you. We are in so much more debt right this minute than we were two or three or four years ago. It's not even funny. It's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. It's new people. 
instead of it being like individuals getting in over their head with home equity lines of credit and jet ski loans and, and whatever the hell else they were doing, they're, they're, they've been somewhat shut down, but the governments are going wild. And, uh, you know, what, I don't even want to make the list. California, New York, Greece. Greece, for all the angst over Greece, Greece is a rounding error. If California goes in a dumper, <laughs> Greece, Greece is meaningless. You know, it's interesting you say that. I just said the same thing, that it's, it's, it's nothing compared to even one state going under. Yeah, no. No, Greece is like, well, you know, has the, has the you know, economy of Rhode Island, for God's sake. <laughs> and, and yet it gets hyped in the news, and out of the same time they're hyping it, they're telling us everything's really okay, don't worry, right? So I, I, I've never really understood that push-pull other than I guess they want to keep the masses calm. The recovery has been a public relations campaign, at least FDR, who I, as an economics student, I don't agree. If you do any real research into the Great Depression, my grandparents thought FDR was God. Understood, but if, yeah. You know, but if you, under, if you really study the actions taken by the government during the 30s, all it did is actually prolong the Depression longer than it actually really needed to be. Um, so it, it's... It's, it's, I want to. I don't want. I want to, but I don't want to quote Ronald Reagan here. That uh, the biggest lie is that I'm with the government and I'm here to help you. <laughs> it's, it's and that's the. the and you saw one of my videos. Everything they're doing has been wrong. I understand why they're doing it. I disagree with all my heart that they are doing it. Whether it be the borrowing, this whole Keynesian approach to spending your way out of it that Paul Krugman was on TV over the weekend, and for your audience who don't know who the hell he is, uh, he's a professor, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, a columnist in the New York Times, who is determined we are absolutely going into another depression because the stimulus was not enough and we need another big one pronto. So if we so just that- throw more money into the fire, it'll burn longer, I guess, is the, is the theory there. It's the fear of pain that I think, God forbid, that anybody fails. You know, I, my daughter goes to, goes to a school like that, which I love the school, really actually do with all my heart. But, like, everyone knows these places now. You can't give trophies to anybody because, mm-hmm. God forbid, somebody wins. So everybody's a winner. Everybody's a winner. Nobody's a loser. But the fact is, as soon as you get out of school, man, that ain't true. That ain't true at all. And you know what? You made me think of something. My nephew, when he was a real little guy, I remember going to his basketball games, and they didn't keep score because they didn't want to hurt the kids' feelings. But what was funny is human beings are hardwired to be competitive, and if you asked any of those little kids that could barely count on that bench what the score was at any second, every single kid knew the score. So they really weren't hot. they weren't sheltering the children from anything. Right. They were sheltering themselves, and I think that's what these politicians are doing. They're sheltering themselves from the uh, the wrath of the public by trying to buy us off. It's 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 okay to fail sometimes. Yes. Chris Stearns should have just failed. I, I, I don't get me started. You know, uh, uh, all the ex Lehman guys, uh, the Lehman alumni, we're a little ticked off still. You know, of all the companies that were allowed or could have failed, only one was allowed to fail, and it was us, which is still upsetting to me, mostly because of who was Treasury Secretary at the time, 
and uh, who he was CEO of immediately before uh, becoming Treasury Secretary. But don't get me started. That's a whole other radio program. Yeah, and, you know, we're talking about a lot of high-level things here, but I got a lot of folks, you know, that that aren't some of the, the people that are managing billions that you work with on a daily basis. I've got a lot of people that have anywhere between, so let's say, $50,000 and $500,000 in 401Ks and IRAs and uh, savings and bonds and stocks and, and stuff like that. What advice would you give a middle American right now that's sitting on you know anything in in that range and saying I want to be able to to protect my money I'd like to grow it a little bit but I'm scared and I don't know what to do what do I do with my money? Uh, same thing my brother-in-law tells me when I'm going to get on my uh, 600cc uh, triple cylinder two-stroke snowmobile and which is don't be stupid. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> elaborate please <laughs> yeah. well i mean that's that's his advice because you know these are of course a bunch of people who also work for me but like that's that's the advice don't get stupid on me and what i mean by that is i'm watching the markets actively all kinds of markets stock market bond market currency markets commodities real estate i've never seen so many different ways that i can picture you getting your kneecaps broken right now uh, we can get into it in more detail later, but I really do think we're absolutely on track for Dow Jones that's going to be in the 4,000s sooner than you think, in the next 18, 36 months tops. Uh, bonds, where do you think rates are going to go? Lower? Lower than zero? Sure. You know, so, I mean, um, oil, $72. There's other complicating political things with oil, just to single that one out, because we have a we have a rig explosion, which was tragic, and 11 men died, and, and we got 60,000 barrels a day getting pumped into the Gulf. But you make the decision the day after to, like, stop all deep-water drilling? That was pretty stupid. Think, well, maybe, maybe we should do that. I don't know. But, I mean, I wouldn't make a decision about, like, whether I should get my oil changed, like, tomorrow. Like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's what I when I say it's stupid, I'm not saying it's the wrong decision. I'm saying that there's no, no. way to, there's no way to know if it's the right decision. At the same time, they're making that decision overnight. They're putting off the decision to put berms out to protect the islands because of what environmental impact uh, the berms might have. But yet they won't drill for any. While you know, we say we need oil and we want to not be dependent on foreign oil. And, yeah, right. neither one of us probably need to go off on a tangent there because we'll spend the rest of the interview on it. But right. it is an example of gross incompetence is the nicest term I can come up with for it. What is sad is damn near everyone listening, at least I hope our, our audience still, the vast majority of them are still working for somebody. Could be a municipality, could be a big corporation, could be, could be running their own small business. But I'll tell you what, whoever they work for, they got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. We got a new product. We're going to we're going to cut back on staff by five percent. Our budget is. They, they have some sort of a strategy. What is really enormously sad for me to like make people think about is what is the United States' strategy? What do we what like like what do we plan? What are we planning for five years from now? What do we want for ourselves ten years from now? Do we want to increase our college graduation rate? Do we want to be 5% on solar electricity? I mean, what? We don't. The United States simply runs around and 
throws uh, a bucket of water on whatever seems to be on fire at the moment, and that's that. This oil thing is fine. Maybe we shouldn't drill in deep water. I don't like like you and I agree. We don't know, but you don't make a decision like that the day after a damn rig blows up. You think about it. Like, Correct. You get some information so you can make an informed decision. And, and you know, you, you, what you're just saying is made me think about your former comments about FDR. And I'm dead on with you on, on my opinion of, of FDR. And I think he did prolong the recession. But I guess the redeeming characteristic is some of the, uh, the make work stuff that, that they put together for like, you know, the Civilian Conservation Corps and all actually built things that we still use today. We built the Hoover Dam during the Great Depression, and it's still providing us electricity. We built national parks and things that, that I've this year have been to four different national parks with pieces of them that were built in the 30s by people that were part of that program. I'm not saying it was the best idea in the world, but at least we got something out of it. What are we yeah. getting for our... $780 billion stimulus that really cost us a trillion dollars. What will be there 10 years from now from that investment, let alone 80 years from now? Well, I have answers for it because okay. Wisconsin has got LED stoplights. Oh, okay. I okay. just heard the mayor. He was on TV just a couple days ago. So you see, you better get your information straight. Wow. Oh, you know what? I wasn't fair, Mike, because we're going to have that turtle tunnel for a long time in Florida. Now, the turtles don't use it. But if we come up with a new stimulus program, maybe we can start educating turtles on how to we use their tunnels. We can, we can get them some LED stoplights, <laughs> and they'll know which way to go. You laugh because it's the only thing you can do, because it is depressing. I know. Let me push you on the question, though, that we started this, this little part out with. What, what is my guy that's sitting out there that's not supposed to get yeah. stupid, supposed to do with his 50 grand or his 100 grand? or what would you, If it was I your think, money, if it, you, you right yeah. now, I take away everything you have. I put you in middle America. You're screwed just like everybody else. You have a yeah. 401k with 220 grand in it. What do you do? All right. I, I don't like giving personal advice, but here is what my viewpoints are on things. I would not buy any any new stocks. In this, and this recent rally, the Dow still is kind of close to 10000 but I'm telling you, you could lose 50% of your money from here so fast, you'll, your nose will bleed. I would not buy any bonds. I don't think we're going to have inflation. I actually worry about deflation. Uh, so... But still, Would you liquidate and go to cash or some type of a safe? Damn, safe? damn close. A real, okay. short, a real, a real short-term bond fund. Careful of commodities. Gold could break your legs right now. Uh, I would not buy a house under any circumstance or any commercial real estate, which would be even worse. So, I mean, there's asset classes I can absolutely say I would just, I wouldn't touch them with your money. And I would not buy stocks. I would not buy bonds. I would not buy most commodities. I would not buy commercial or residential real estate. So what's that lead to? Cash, Cash? sounds so unappealing because yeah, because it, it's yielding you nothing almost. Yeah, but you know what it is yielding? It's a it's a positive number. Yeah, and a, a couple of years from now, I bet you if you bought stock in 1999 or 2000, and uh, you you would have traded for any sort of a positive number for right this minute. Correct, and you know the way I look at that is I screamed that in 2008, summer of 2008, and people like you were smarter than me. You guys saw it in 2007. It, I'm slow. It took me six more months, but we were still at the precipice, and we were sitting up at you know high 12s in the Dow, and I'm like, just go to cash, and people said the same thing, but then I don't get a return. Well, you won't get is a negative return of the, the, the 60% bath that people took by February of that following year. To me, that's a positive return because I didn't lose, and I think that... A lot of people out there have almost like a reverse greed. 
instead of being greedy with their money where they actually protect it, they're so afraid that they might not make that additional four points that they leave money at risk when it's time to pull it off the freaking table and be happy that you have what you have. I, I use the sports metaphor. I was a real, real serious tennis player throughout my childhood and, and early adulthood. And, and I, was, I was always trained to attack, win, control the points, control the match. And the first time I played John McEnroe, which is a whole other TV, uh, radio show, too, <laughs> or TV, if you want, um, it was funny because my coach took me aside and gave me a real serious lecture about, like, Mike, do whatever you can, try not to lose. Hmm. And I was a little freaked out as a teenager because I'm like, because I wasn't used to that. I, and, and your listeners might wonder, well, what's the difference? And it's an American thing, man. That's all we think about is winning. How do we win? How much do we win by? There's times you should worry about that. How much can I make in the stock market? How much can I make in real estate? But when you have the advantage, right? Yes, and when you don't have the advantage, you try your best not to lose. You dig in, you protect your turf, and you don't be stupid. You know, that's, that's very interesting. I have a, a very good friend named Valerie Azanov. He was part of, actually, uh, the Russian Olympic judo squad, and then later on, actually, in compulsory military service, worked with the KGB. And he told me the, almost the exact same thing about why the Soviets were so successful back in, in the glory days in the Olympics, that we here in the West train to win, and they train to survive. And if you survive long enough, you might wear out your opponent and create the opportunity to win. And I think you're saying kind of the same thing with our money right now. You know, it's time for you to work on survival uh, turn of phrase that this audience is familiar with, so that you can have the opportunity when sooner or later, I guess something will present itself. But uh, my grandfather used to tell me that during the Great Depression, he would go down into town and there'd be these huge bushel of apples for a nickel. And all he could say was, damn, that's cheap, which meant it was a great buying opportunity, but if you don't have any money, it doesn't do you any good. Right. So, or another sports one. Lee Trevino used to talk about the uh, biggest uh, pressure he ever felt in his life was not the British Open or the U.S. Open. It was when he had bet a guy 20 bucks on something and he only had five in his pocket. <laughs> That'll do it, because if you lose, you've lost more than you have. And right. You've lost more than you have to lose. That's, and that's, you know, that's what I think a lot of Americans just did that are, you know, in their late 50s that were banking on an early retirement. Right. And, and, and maybe they still have some money, but they still lost more than they had to lose. And I guess there's a point where anybody needs to start putting some of that, no matter how good things are, put some of it aside for protection. Let's shift gears a bit, because you also recently have been saying, you know, basically everything that the government has done in response to this is wrong. And one of the things that you railed on was the tax cuts. And oh. look, I am all for taxing people less. I'm a libertarian. I don't want an income tax at all. But we've created a system that if we're ever going to ever you know, deconstruct it, it can't be done overnight. And I get what you were saying. In that one video, you talked about the single mom. And you're talking about the tax cuts, the stimulus checks that were sent out, right? And this chick worked at Starbucks. And I'm sure she was a good, she was a good lady and all and trying to do the right things. But just clueless to how things work. And she was going to blow her rebate, which, by the way, I call that a gift from taxpayers. Um, because she already effectively pays no t taxes. And she was going to go to Jamaica. Right, And the government tells us as long as they put money into our economy, it'll stimulate it. And can you tell us why nonsense like that just can't make the economy go again? It's not like a fire. We just throw logs on it and it'll start burning. 
it's well just it's as simple as this that it's just not sustainable and because it's it, even her spending and god bless it jamaica is very lovely if, you know if you go to the right spots and 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 she maybe had a great time but the fact of the matter is a lot of the money that number one the united states government didn't have to give her the united states government borrowed the money <laughs> to send to her which is you know which is troubling in its own right but just think about how much of that money gets spent outside the United States. How, you know, hopefully some people took it to like at least Walmart and they bought a Vizio LCD TV and Walmart got a little bit of that, but we all know damn well that Vizio TV was built in China. Correct. Correct. And, and, and the cash for clunkers thing, I, my memory, and if I'm wrong, by all means, one of your listeners will write in and correct me, but I think seven or eight out of the top ten cars that got cash for clunker money were foreign made. No, you're correct. You're, you're definitely foreign correct made. on that. It's yeah. stupid. It's, it's it's stupid. I mean, it's that's the that's the that's the heartbeat of Keynesian economics. Hey, cash for clunkers. I want your take on this. Here's my other problem with that. We trade in the old car, right, to get it off the market, pay, and they pay for right, and then they destroyed it. Right. At a time when there were so many people out of work that could have used any car just so they could get a job, so they could right. get the freaking work, and those cars could have maybe been turned back onto the street as some kind of a charity thing, but instead, not only were they pulled off the street, the dealers were forced to pour sand into the motors and seize them up to ensure they would never run again. Right. Well, the arrogance of a society that throws away a functioning automobile... At a time when resources are supposed to be short, I just, I, I don't even understand it. I guess well, we're staying well, in polar bears. Well, I'm staying, I'm staying with the economic part of it, which is like what I was, I apologize for interrupting, but the, you know, that car was probably paid for. Correct. And most, most people bought cars in the fifteen to $25,000 range and ended up with payments in the three to $500 range, as opposed to having no payment and, and worse. Oh. It, there's, there's, it, 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 it's endless stupidity, not to mention how many of those dollars once again fled the United States borders and went elsewhere, which is fine. We, we sell a lot of things abroad, too. John Deere, Caterpillar, Microsoft, Disney, Coca-Cola, whatnot. We sell plenty of stuff abroad, too. So I'm not faulting the fact that money goes out because a lot of foreign money comes in. Sure. But the fact that is we shouldn't fund it with debt, for God's sake. Exactly. And there is a big imbalance. I mean, right now, if you want to buy one of those great big um, shipping containers, they sell them dirt cheap because the Chinese basically ship their, their goods in them and leave them here because it costs too much to bring them back. They're in surplus on both coasts like you wouldn't believe. And that, to me, that's a physical reminder of how much more comes in than goes out. I got one in my yard, Jack. That's my third <laughs> Jack. We'll talk about that the next time we have you on. That sounds like part of your homesteading activities. Yeah, uh, it is, somewhat. You know, I, this is where I'm going to kind of, I already know the answer to this, but I want to let the audience hear it from you uh, because you differ with me on this, and the more I look and the more I've been watching the last couple of weeks, the more I'm inclined to agree with you. But before we even had the crash, I said this is what's going to happen. The, the, the market's going to fall, and it's going to fall down into the, the, the $7,000 range. It went below that, down into the 6000 uh, on the Dow is what I was talking about. And that then we would have a false recovery. And a lot of people have said, okay, you're right. Here's the false recovery. Now, I had more than this in mind. 
I had another 1,500, 2,000 points on, on the Dow in mind. I had unemployment coming down into the 9 percentile range. I had the economy sucking, but everybody saying it was good, and then the second fall. You're saying no, right? You're saying we've had the high point, the double dip is on the way, 18 to 36 months. Why do you feel that's the case? Why, why am I wrong? I depends how much time you have to listen to my reasons. <laughs> We've seen we've seen the high in the Dow for this year and probably the next few, so that's in. Okay. Double dip. You know, unemployment fell last week, but why did that happen? Because 650,000 Americans last month stopped looking for work. And if your audience doesn't know that, the unemployment rate is calculated using only two groups of people, people that are employed and people that are actively looking for work. Correct. The minute the minute you stop looking, you're quote unquote discouraged, and you don't count anymore. And six hundred and fifty thousand Americans uh, in June alone stopped looking for a job. Thus, the unemployment rate falls. Number one. Number two. Almost everything about the current economy is phony. Uh, with regards to intervention by the U.S. government, with almost a trillion dollar stimulus plan an $880 billion TARP program, 0% interest rates by the Federal Reserve. Uh, and and if, you, if your audience can stand the boredom of learning what quantitative easing is, which is almost one of the most troubling things to me, is how the hell the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government get out of that. What a quagmire they, they've woven for themselves with that. But uh, what's interesting is, We've thrown trillions and trillions of dollars at the economy. We've dropped interest rates to zero to make things as, quote-unquote, good as they are now. This is how great the economy is. Because mm. you've got to remember, Biden and others were on the record that if we pass the stimulus, unemployment will never go above 8%. Correct. They said that they were wrong, Clear, clearly, because we have it. Of course we've got it. I don't know how we're going to avoid it. So as far as a double dip, there's nothing organic about what just happened. Everything about what just happened, and what I mean is the Dow Jones rallying and unemployment falling to only nine and a half. It's all thanks to that, that all this governmental intervention, which is what our friend Paul Krugman, my uh, my professor, Nobel Prize winning New York Times guy, was talking about that we need more of that. And, and okay, and then how would we argue with? And, and I think I know what you're going to say, so I'm playing devil's advocate here. The person that says, "Well, well, you just admitted that it worked. If we do more, won't it work more?" What's your response to that? Well, I've already had two beers today, and I feel okay. <laughs> but if I, had 20, if I had 25 more, I might feel really good. Yeah, but you might but make bad decisions. Feel, I, <laughs> I make why I make or more bad decisions than I've already made other than appearing on your show. I'm kidding, Chuck. All right, man. <laughs> I'm, but 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 we all know how I'm going to feel tomorrow, man. That ain't that you know. The hangover comes. We're all grown people. At least I hope most of your listeners are. We know cause and effect. You can do whatever the hell you want. That's what being an American is all about. But you pay for it. You know the check comes at the end. Put in the restaurant, order whatever the hell you want. That's fine. That's cool. That's all right. And then the check comes. 
And and the thing is, the, the administration and Congress that's in there right now is all going to be in the men's and ladies' rooms when the bill comes. Yeah, I call it T-Rex arms, because, you know, the Tyrannosaurus has those little bitty arms. And it was like a guy that I, back when I was in sales, that asked me to set up this, this meeting. And he came to the dinner, and he, I brought in all these people for him like he asked me to. And he was going to pick up the tab, and he spent more money than anybody else that was there. And then when the check came, he got T-Rex arms, and he just kept ordering more stuff until I finally picked the check up because it was getting to be too expensive. And at least I had the sense to cut it off where it seems like no one in this place has the sense to, to realize that, you know, what we're going to have to pay for it. Um, you know, a lot of them could all be out of there in November, hopefully, and, and, and more of them could be out of there in two more Novembers. Yeah. And before, all, before the check comes. But is that going to – do you think that's going to change anything? If we flip the balance of power in the next two elections, is anybody going to try to fix it? Here's what, here's what I hope happens. Here, I, I, there's what I worry about what's going to happen versus what I, what I think is going to happen. California's got big problems. Los Angeles is bankrupt right this minute. Correct. And we're going to hear more about that. I don't think even among the current crop politicians with November pending is going to have the political will to jump in and bail out California, Los Angeles, or anybody else. I think the American public's patience for that is, is done. Correct. To the point where I think there's anger and worse. So... I think what we're going to have to find out is, you know, like we should have found out with Bear Stearns and with AIG and with General Motors, let them default. That's how, we have a system, man. We, it's there. It's called bankruptcy. The, 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 the people that lent you money, they screwed up. They shouldn't have lent you the money, man. That's just all there is to it. So I can give you, I'll give you 20 cents on a dollar, give you tips or whatever, um, rather than this government intervention. And that's what we... That's my problem. I want to know what banks are really solvent, because I know there's a bunch that are not. I mean, there's a bunch of gigantic, and I don't want to start naming them, U.S. institutions that are functionally bankrupt, limping along day by day, hoping for no more financial punches in the face that might bust them, which is well within the realm of happening. Uh, but I want to know which ones really are solvent. I want to know how much real estate would cost if the government wasn't buying all the mortgage-backed securities with all the mortgages in them, and there was no tax credits, if we lived in a just capitalistic, organic society, how much would real estate be worth? How much would anything be worth without all this manipulation and phoniness? And that's, that's my worry. So much is phony right now, and even the senior, senior, senior management of a lot of these companies, I still think to this day, are somewhat misled to their own their own company's physical financial health. They don't even really know how bad it is themselves, is what you're saying in some of these they're, institutions. They're getting lied to, and we, you know, you and I both, everybody knows damn well the real senior senior people, AIG. They had no idea what those guys no, were doing no. in the financial products division. And, and a guy coming in doing a presentation. Hey, I was in marketing and sales for a long time. You give me an Excel spreadsheet, and I can play with it long enough, and I can make anything look however you tell me you want it to look. I can make the growth curve look sharp. I can make it look sloped. I can make it look bad. I can make it look just by playing with axes and timelines. 
And that's what a lot of these guys do. They bring somebody into the boardroom, and they say, give us a presentation. And when you're told to go see the big boss, you don't tell them, hey, we're screwed. Isn't it great? You always try to make it sound better than it is. At least you try to pass the blame to somebody other than yourself. You don't go in there and go, hey, boss, guess what? I got us into this derivative market, and we're completely screwed. Isn't that wonderful? You know? Well, so, that's and that's what is still, I think, the pending lead balloon that's hanging over all this. And, and that's why I just want – I understand it's going to be painful. I understand it would have been very painful – to let uh, let AIG go, sure. But then Go- Goldman Sachs wouldn't have gotten a hundred cents on a dollar funded by U.S. taxpayers on the you know effectively AIG's bankruptcy. What the hell creditor gets a hundred cents on a dollar from a bankrupt company? I, I, I yeah, it won't happen to me and you. That's for sure. If we go bankrupt, no. I mean that's, no, and that's insane. And certainly not going to be. It's hard to imagine. It sounds stupid when you say it out loud that U.S. U.S. taxpayers paid 185 billion dollars so that the Goldman Sachs and 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 I'm not even trying to pick on them. Yeah, you know, I think exactly. everybody's familiar with that particular one. There's plenty of people that have done the same crap. Sure, they're just the biggest and the most easy to take a shot at. So. But it just it's just it's ludicrous sounding. If I explained it to my like eleven year old, she'd think it sounded stupid. Stupid, yeah. Yeah, I've heard a lot of little kids ask questions like that, and they go, you know, because I like to ask them just to see what they say, because out of the mouth of mouths of babes, as they say, comes the truth. You know, here, here's the thing though. Uh, when I start looking at you, talk about people are easy to take a shot at. One of my favorite people to loathe, and I know you're not exactly a fan of his either, is uh, Jim Cramer. One of those videos, I, <laughs> one of the, I, I was beating up on this guy hard over the Bear Stearns thing, uh, which well, that was an easy shot to take. But one of the things you said in your videos is what Jim Cramer doesn't have a clue about is what's good for the long-term improvement of the economy. Uh, I agree with that. But let's say that I become senior overlord of the universe, and with a wave of my hand, I dub Mike... Uh, Gazer completely in control of the United States economy. You control what the president controls right now. You control what the Congress controls right now. And you have uh, puppet strings attached to Ben Bernanke. And you can make the Fed do whatever it wants. You have sovereign power over the economy. And I said, okay, Mike, give me three to five things that will make it, not necessarily fix it, but make it better. What would you do, even if some of them are painful? Wow. Uh, well, Federal Reserve is an, an interesting one because I the rates should be higher. This this current uh, uh, game, if you want to call it, uh, the reason the Federal Reserve is so dedicated to keeping rates low is because there's a giant group of Federal Reserve Bank members that are currently borrowing from the Federal Reserve at zero and buying five to ten year Treasuries that are paying two and three percent. That's why they're not doing commercial lending because they can't. They already have a gigantic book of crappy assets that are illiquid and perhaps worthless. So they need to stockpile a war chest of cash for the day that you know of reckoning that's going to come. That where they have to just accept the fact that all the stuff they own is crap. Um, so jacking rates up to one percent, even because that's, that's sky like high, right? <laughs> they wouldn't like it. Yeah, It'd be very upsetting. But we we got to shake out this dead wood. I mean, some of these banks. I, I, I think you and I have had this conversation, but I'll say it to everybody listening. I was in Washington, D.C. just a few weeks ago working for the government, oddly enough. 
But uh, standing at McDonald's, which I should perhaps be embarrassed that I'm like admitting that, and ordering off the value menu, which if that means anything to anyone, but you order your food and you step back and you wait for them to call your number. And what was peculiar to me is I realized every single value meal at McDonald's costs more than a share of Citibank stock. Mm. Which uh, mm. that's an interesting commentary on one of the world's <laughs> biggest financial institutions. So I would raise rates. And if, if if any of these banks bust right then, they're not going to bust. I mean, when Americans hear that these places go bust, there's very solvent banks out there who would be happy to buy their branches, their lending business. So you just you break them up. You get rid of them. If they're not going to make it, they don't make it. Get rid of them, for God's sakes. I, I think in the words of a, of a well-known uh, radio host, Dave Ramsey, capitalism, when left alone, fixes stupid and it fixes it fast. Sure. But we, we won't allow it to happen. So we got to raise interest rates. I'm with you on that one. You're of the opinion, though, that we need to uh, to cut entitlement spending as well. And, of course, that sounds good until people realize it affects a lot of folks out there. It, it affects everybody. But I tell the story of my grandfather, which I, I feel embarrassed now. Uh, Jack, do you remember how old would Reagan be if he'd lived? Uh, I'm not sure. It's 90-something. My, my grandfather, my father's father, he always bragged. Him and Reagan were the same age. Long story short, though, my grandfather retired at 65, and he collected Social Security until he passed at 88 years old. Social Security was not built for anyone to be collecting it for 23 years. Correct. So as much as, like, the politicians will pound their fists and we're going to cut back on this and, like, like even you making fun of the turtle tunnel, which I don't know how, how the hell much that costs. It sounds stupid to me, too. It was like $6 million to put in a, a, a culvert <laughs> under a road. It's a rounding <laughs> error. I mean... <laughs> I understand what you're saying, though, yes. Entitlement spending, my God, Americans don't realize. And, it's, and entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, military pensions, government pensions, Medicaid, the stuff that... W- that, that were mandated. We've got laws to say, and we've, we've made promises to all these people. We're going to pay you this. We're going to pay for that. We're going to pay for, you know, of course, we all get free health care now, so that's expensive, too. Hmm. So we have to pay for all this stuff. Well, hold on. On the free health care, you're not getting free health care, and I'm not getting what? free health care. No, what? no, no. We're you and I are going to pay more for our health care so other people. You didn't get that memo? You and I are no, going to pay I heard a lot more. <laughs> I, heard, I heard on TV. It's all free for everybody. No, no, no. It's free for the people oh, have it. You have to pay three times as much, Mike. I have to pay two and a half. And then these other go. people get it, and it's free. All right. I got to go back to work. I, gotta go <laughs> I, I can't talk to you no more. Okay, so we have to, we have to cut some entitlements. I, I believe we have to get rid of Social Security. I, I don't think we can... Just yank it out like a rug from underneath, you know, a table. And no, do a you can't. Break. No, I'm not even, I would never even suggest that. That's, that, no, we're not going to do that. But I do think that we could come up with, I think there's smart enough people out there, some of these accountant buddies of yours, if they were allowed to do their job with a way to basically wean us off of this failed system and, and to put the retirement money back in the hands of the retiree so that, I mean, right now, the way I put it is there's like three people working for every one on Social Security. And in another couple of years, I think, you know how like if you adopt a kid over in Africa, you know, they send you his picture and he's like your sponsored kid. That soon we'll have it where they, they can mail you a picture of your Social Security recipient. You work for this person. This is you're sponsoring them in their old age, and that's just not sustainable. Uh, what's his name? David Walker said we have a fifty-five trillion dollar hole 
in Medicare and Medicaid, fifty-five trillion. There's that's a little. That's a, that's a, a, a quasi-old number too. Oh, and David Walker also is very fond of telling you uh, one more statistic, which I want to make sure your whole audience hears this. Let's go with Jack's fifty-five trillion dollars. Now that's a combination. Let's get one thing straight: of our national debt and the promises that we've paid to all the people I just, you know, the promises rather that we've made about what we would pay to all those Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, pension recipients. If every American sold everything they own, including Bill Gates, every American, every share of stock, your house, your car, everything you owned, the total net worth of the United States is not $55 trillion. <laughs> Yeah, so the money doesn't exist. That's what you're saying. It doesn't exist. If we liquidated all the assets, all the investments, and everything every American owned, we already don't have enough money to pay that bill, period. So taxing the rich, as they always say, not going to pull it off. Because if we took all their money, first of all, no one would have a job because they wouldn't be right. there to employ anybody. But even right. if we just had this magical make-believe land where we could take all the rich people's money and not destroy the economy – it wouldn't add up to much more than a rounding error against $55 trillion. Now you made me think of one of my grandfather's favorite sayings. And I grew up, you know, in a very blue-collar, very working-class background. And my grandfather's quote, God bless him, a poor man never gave me a job. I completely agree. And I haven't found one that would do it yet either. I found poor people that wanted me to work, but they didn't want to give me any money in return for exactly. it. <laughs> in fact, they wanted me to work so I could give them money, and I don't find that sustainable either. You know, part, we're getting ready to wrap up now, but what I want to say is one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on this show is it is very rare in my experience that I find a person out there today in the public eye that genuinely gives a shit, and I can't put it any other way, genuinely gives a shit about people. You do, and that's why you teach. And I think anybody that really dedicates their life to teaching has to be that kind of person because you can't do it because you take and you teach the same thing like a hundred times. It becomes repetitive. You have to care about the recipient. Why, you know, why aren't you just, you've got money now. You know what to do with it. You can protect yourself. You've got a nice place up there uh, in, in New England. You could hang out on your boat, say the hell with it. Why do you keep working and keep teaching people? Why Why do you take time to come on a show like this that's not full of accountants that are going to pack your seminars and take time to explain to people? Why is it important to you? You know, it's interesting. I because you and I have tried to discuss this, and I, I never really gave this whole thing much thought. I, I'm, first, I'm from a working family. I, I don't. I do play golf, and I have like some hobbies, but I, I like working, and, and I like the. I like. I never thought about it, but I, I am a natural teacher. I, I love sharing. There's a, there's a look on somebody's face when when they learn something that they wanted to know, and you can tell they got it, and and and. And I don't like the fact. It's almost like an aristocracy, and it's really gotten bad in recent years, of people who know about credit default swaps or people that know about CDOs. And, and they really, some of them take a, a sick, perverse pleasure in the fact that there's a lot of people who just don't get it. And they think that's kind of amusing to them. And my Wall Street buddies are always happy to tell me that I, 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 I oversimplify everything. And I just tell them, you know, the truth is, pal, you just overcomplicate everything. 
Because I think that, uh, like, the powers that be want people to can be confused because it's easy to sell people a bill of goods when they don't understand what's on it, right? And and we have a government and a media right now. The entire recovery, if you, if I, I'm nauseous using that word, it's been a public relations campaign. Because if you ask your listeners, like, how's their their recovery going? There's, they're going to be like, what the hell is the work recovery? What, is, sure. what are you talking about? There's no recovery. I haven't there. seen any green shoots uh, popping up in my backyard no. except in my garden. Uh, although I will tell you, man, I, I, I don't want to say anything out of school, but when I was in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago, man, there ain't no recession there. That yeah. wall was jamming. I saw that knee. I saw Neiman Marcus there filled with people. So That drives me nuts. How I mean, I hear about how bad the recession is, and uh, admittedly, North Texas hasn't been hit as hard as the rest of the nation, and we've had a pretty big pop here with uh, the Barnett Shell and natural gas and a lot of homeowners getting five, $6,000 bonus checks and then pulling in royalties for a couple hundred dollars a month that might last 20 years. So that's helped float us a bit, but I still see every shopping mall packed. I see shopping mall packs on Thursdays. Are people st- I mean, I've been led to believe that people aren't, you know, getting I, I, credit anymore. Are these people still loading up the MasterCard? Is that how they're I doing this? They must be. I mean, I look at the raw economic data, and incomes aren't increasing. Sure. Savings, savings are not increasing. There's, I, 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 as horrible as it sounds, and this is strictly an anecdotal, meaning it's not based on any actual evidence, but I, I think a couple of things. Number one, people are living in houses for sometimes a year, 18, 24 months without paying their mortgage because they're getting foreclosed on Sure, and they're just pocketing they're the liquid. money. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're liquid, and, and an interesting thing from an economist point of view, which is me, which is it used to be the absolute last bill that you would ever miss payment on is your mortgage. Oh, and that's the God. first? Now it's the first. And interestingly, credit cards, because people view them as a lifeline. They need that Visa, MasterCard, Discover, American Express. Because the house, well, screw it. We'll just let the house go. You know, everyone right. loses the house. And uh, as long as I, you know, I can buy gas and I can go to the mall. With and that. as long as I make my $49 minimum payment that's going to take me 60 years if I stop spending, they'll right. let me do it again next month. Well, I could, and I could screw them over later, too. Yeah. <laughs> once, you know, once you can screw your, your mortgage lender over, well, you can screw anybody over. You know, and that's an ethics thing that's made the problem worst. Your grandfather, my grandfather, would have never done that to his name. And if you would have done something that sullied his name 1% of what these people are doing to themselves, he'd have kicked your ass. I, I mean, I know where oh. you're from, and I know how tough right. my grandfather was, and I would have been oh. behind the woodshed if I gave one inkling of a bad name to the Spirico family. I'm right, sure because the you know, family, your ears would have right. been red for a month. Right, God forbid you, you know... Uh, besmirk the Spirko family name. Yeah. Get your head off a wall somewhere. So, but that's, that's the age we're living in. I give Fannie Mae credit, if nothing. I don't know if Freddie Mac has followed or will follow, but Fannie Mae, I think they're right on track. Uh, actually announced a couple of weeks ago, if you walk away from your mortgage and you have the financial ability to make your payments. So it isn't like you're unemployed, but if sure. you could have paid it and you said, screw it, uh, strategic, uh, default, seven years, you're locked out. You're not getting a mortgage from any Fannie Mae lender for seven years. I think it's brilliant. I, I, I can't see why you would. 
What, why, exactly, seven, how about never? How about <laughs> never for defrauding yeah. the system? I mean, to me, it's fraud. It's, it, it's, it's to the level of, I don't want to come, like you're saying, I don't want to come down on the person that can't pay. Oh. But the person right. that's going to screw it, I'm not going to do it anymore because I don't like living here and I can't sell it and I can't right. do a short sale, so I'm out and walks right. away. And, and that's one thing. But the guy that drives me crazy is the one you're talking about. This is the one I find completely unethical, the one that sits in the house for 12 months knowing he's going to get evicted and just pocket the you know, money until the sheriff shows up. Well, there's an argument that, like, institutions... Uh, like Morgan Stanley, not very long ago, walked away from a multi-hundred million dollar uh, property in California because it was underwater. Sure. And the thing is, at an institutional commercial level, well, that's business, man. That's just a business decision, and it's fine. But you know what? Morgan Stanley didn't get their mortgage from a damn U.S. government agency. Correct. And they didn't walk scot-free either. They had to pay something. And they weighed the two expenses, and they paid the lesser of the two based on the foreseeable future. So they didn't walk away and just wash their hands and never have to deal with the consequences. Correct. And, 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 but I, I bring up that story because that's the argument for strategic default. I understand that maybe we shouldn't be so upset. Because, it, like, back to our grandparents, it was, oh, my God, such a so shameful. So, you know, everyone was, would be, that was the most shameful thing for you to lose your home. But, but that's the argument currently that, well, homeowners, see, banks, and that's true, they don't feel bad for closing on you. They don't even think No, they are. It's a business decision. That's okay. And, and the argument for strategic default is that, like, that homeowners should think more like bankers. But that's fine, unless you've, you, you've eaten from the government trough and your mortgage is what it is because you got it via one of these government agencies. That Fannie Mae rule only applies if you screwed over Fannie Mae. Correct, and that's what I think. But there's how many of the public, you know, consumer-level mortgages are backed by Freddie and Fannie in the United States? It, it, well, now 94% of all huh. mortgages being taken out in the United States are going into either Ginnie Mae, Fannie Mae, or Freddie Mac. Uh, mortgage-backed securities, all guaranteed by the U.S. government now. See, and that's where I'm saying that the work you did, the work I did, the work that all of the blue-collar, hard-working people who listen to this show have done over the years, that pay their bills on time, with their surplus that was taken from them against their will in the form of taxes, was used to back that loan that this guy's walking, you know, this guy or that guy's walking away from. And that's why it's not as simple as a business decision, because it's not just between you and the party that you, uh, you, you, you entered into an agreement with. It's between you, that party, and all of us who made sure that you could buy a house in the first place. You have some obligation back to society is how I feel. It's, it's like a driver's license, not a right. It's a privilege. That you, that because you had money to put down or private mortgage insurance and you had decent credit, that you were, you were able to participate in one of these government-sponsored mortgage programs. So, but that doesn't mean that it's not in the Constitution that like, you could like, you know, screw the government over and then just go back to the trough and, and get more in line for a second Fannie Mae loan. That's, you want to default, God bless. Good for you. So, you know, make your own decision. Go get an apartment, and that's, that's fine. But don't be coming back here. It, it, it strikes me as odd that there was even a time when you could. It's, oh, it's, it's well, insane. A couple weeks ago. Yeah, I know. We, we're, we're starting to go long, though, so I want to kind of wrap up. Um, but let me just ask you real quick, for people that are out there right now, 
some basic things that they should be doing, you think, to prepare. Oh, here's one question I almost forgot to ask you. We've got so many young people going to college, ra- racking up that student loan debt. When it comes to picking a career for the new economy, somebody, I mean, I just talked to a girl. She has a $75,000 student loan debt. She has a degree almost in communications. I think she's screwed. She overpaid for a degree. What should, I mean, we know to keep the debt down, so we'll let that go. But what should people be going into right now for the future? Uh, you know, I, I've never, I've, I've, I'm a teacher. I teach seminars. I consult. And I have been just a well of knowledge because people want to know about what they should do for their career. What should I? And I used to have all kinds of advice for them. And I've, I, that's the first thing we talked about. I spent my entire adult life in the financial services industry, which is the last thing I would tell everybody to get into. Not because I, I love it and I'm going to stay in it until I can't no more and then I'll go figure something else out. But I, I don't, I don't really know. I, I'm as screwed as, is your friend because I don't you know I don't know anything about pharmaceuticals I don't know nothing about like auto making I don't know nothing I don't know what, so it's it's a difficult thing I mean with uh, of course free health care for everybody I mean you would think that would be a decent field although yeah. I don't know if that is going to expand to pharmaceuticals because clearly if uh, we have to give away the drug these miracle drugs which cost billions of dollars to invent and develop um, we now have to give them away for near nothing I don't know. If, I, I don't know. I mean, I. I you know what? I, that is that is the mark of an honest man that will just answer a question that way. So I appreciate that because I asked you the question because I don't freaking know either. What I've been telling. I don't know. What I've been telling people is with the internet, uh, get a passion, brand yourself, and be known for your passion because whatever happens, there's always opportunity, and you always need somebody in any field. So you might as well be known as the best at what you do and, and do something you love because it's not like anything's going to boom anytime I can see. I, I thought maybe you might know a sector that would be worth looking into. Medical kind of springs to mind for me as well, but, I mean, I don't well, really I mean, know either. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm, as a father of a young girl, I mean, there's certain jobs you can't do without. you got to have doctors. you got to have nurses. Sure. you got to have lawyers. you got to have accountants. Uh, you know, and, and perhaps you know, a few more down the road. Uh, uh, that I just am not thinking of. So there are there are career paths. No matter what the economy does, there's gonna nobody's gonna get rid of lawyers. No matter what anyone says, no one, everyone's gonna get sick and hurt. So, but that's really like baseline, elementary, fundamental stuff at that point. That's not very creative on either of our parts. Gotcha. Yeah, I, but that's that's the only answer I've got right now. I'm, I'm glad to see I'm not alone in that. Um, real quick, I'd want people to know how can they find out more about you, and I'll put a link to whatever you say in the show notes. So, uh, you just if you want to put a link up, you put up my website. But anybody listening, just look up, just Google Mike, and my last name is G A S I O R, and you'll get 130,000 pages or something to you know. That's all you need to, and the world is your oyster at that point. But because uh, I can't imagine much of your audience, as you said, is going to be coming to my seminars. But I've got YouTube videos on my website are more videos that are on YouTube, all my old newsletters. Uh, I have a blog. Uh, I haven't been tweeting much. I was tweeting. I'm becoming less hip. Not <laughs> tweeting and blogging as much as I used to, but, you know, 
that that that's free work. So I tend to like most people focus on what I get paid for. So sure, sure. But uh, there's plenty. There's plenty. You can you'll find more than you want to know about me if you go out there. And, and I'll put a link where people can get your newsletter as well. I think you guys sign up for it because uh, seven hundred thousand people do it. So you must be saying something that makes sense. Uh, and Mike, I want to thank you for coming on. And we talked offline. Turns out you're a bit of a homesteader. So what I'd like to do is, can we have you back on maybe toward the end of the month? Do another show about that. I hey, don't you know it? I love. I, I'm an outdoors guy. That's where I grew up. So I uh, I still live that lifestyle, no matter what what people think my 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 real passions are. I love I love outside. So we'll have Mike back on for that, and folks, we'll go ahead and wrap up. I know we went a little long, but hey, Mike has a lot of things to say. I'll also tell you this: Mike's uh Mike's a pretty informative guy, and he's pretty accessible. So if you guys have any questions that I didn't get in that you'd like to hear Mike answer, uh, let me know, and I'll pass them on to him. We'll either get him back on, or maybe it'll give him fodder for his blog uh, work or his YouTube work or something like that, and we'll give those answers to you because he's sure as hell a gifted teacher. Uh, and I also want to remind you folks, I know you didn't hear a whole bunch of It's All Super and Great stuff today, but I don't think this audience is really looking to hear that because you're looking to hear the way things are and the way things most likely will become rather than have somebody paint a picture for you of everything super so please keep doing the things that we talk about every day uh like mike says there's times when you tie your boat up to the dock and you sit it out for a little while we may be entering a time like that i'll give you more information as i find it and more thoughts as i find out about where i think we're going with that but uh you could do worse to listen to a guy like mike uh and with that i'll say this has been mike gazer and jack spirico with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.